Good morning. We're going to be in Exodus 32 this morning, Exodus 32. Uh, we just did communion. We just did giving. Um, one thing I would say, or I would want to think about as we get into the sermon today is, who, who are we communing with? Who are we giving to? I think if we don't know who God is, these can all just be habits or practices or religious observances. But if we know who God is, then communion is an extremely special time where we get to be with our Creator. And giving is an even more special time because He has given us so much. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, we're going to talk about <clears throat> the immutability of God today in Exodus 32. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your nature. We thank you for your love, everlasting love, unchanging love, unfailing love. We ask you to teach us that this morning, how much you love us and how you never change your mind about us. We just trust you for these few words this morning. We ask you to bless these people in their walks with you. We also ask you to, to bring new people into a walk with you today, Lord, that you would touch someone's heart and minister to them and reveal yourself to them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to be in Exodus 32, and we're going to start with verses 7 through 10. But before I get there, I just want to give you a few, a few thoughts to get us ready to read this passage. Uh, so God's immutability. Who knows what God's immutability is, what that means? God is immutable. What's another way to say that? He's unchanging. He does not change. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. He does not change. So there's a question about God's nature that many Christians ask, ask themselves in relation to his immutability. It goes something like this. If God is immutable, then why does the Bible have different passages where it appears that he changes his mind? If God does not change in his thoughts, actions, or words, then why do passages exist that bring that into question as we walk and we read and we learn Another way of saying this is, if God is constant, then can he also be indecisive? Can God be indecisive about his plan, about his works, about uh, his nature towards his creation? Here's a, here's a big theological word for you. Ready? Are these passages just anthropopathisms? Anthropopathisms, meaning... God being spoken about in a way that displays human emotion, human nature, human character, so that we can relate with him? Is it something more sinister, like God is actually a liar, even though the Bible says that he's not? Millard Erickson, he wrote uh, Christian Theology. Most recent edition came out in 2019. He, he kind of brings this issue this overarching issue to the question, and he says this, the major issue pertains to the nature of God. Is he fixed and unchanging in essence, 
Or does he grow and develop like the rest of the universe, as process theology contends? Well, we already mentioned Malachi 3.6. What does God say about himself? I am the Lord, I change not. I would say that's pretty clear cut right there from the Bible, right from God's mouth. I am the Lord, I change not. How do we deal with these things? How do we understand God's immutability if we are fallen creatures who can't understand an infinite God? Let's take a a, a look at a few definitions of the word immutable, and then we'll get to the passage, okay? Uh, In Arthur Pink's The Attributes of God, Arthur Pink defines immutable as this. God is perpetually the same, subject to no change in his being, his attributes, or his determinations. That means whatever he has said goes. Whatever he has declared that comes to pass. Whatever he uh, does as a work, that work is done forever in the book of Ecclesiastes. The New Unger's Bible Dictionary calls it the divine attribute of unchangeableness and references Exodus 3.14, where when Moses goes to meet God at the burning bush, God introduces himself as this. He says, I am that I am. I am that I am. This is God pointing to his unchanging nature. This is God pointing to his eternality, to his infiniteness. I am that I am. He's saying, I am the same today, I am the same tomorrow, I am the same before you were created, and I will be the same for the rest of eternity. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews doubles down on God's immutability and bolsters his reputation of not being a liar as he explains his constancy. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 18. He has promised Abraham something that Abraham could never uphold on his own, so he had to promise. He had, it says in Hebrews 6, 13, I could find no one greater, so I swear by myself to make this promise come to pass. If God were unchanging or, or, or going back and forth or saying one thing and doing another, then this thing that took place with Abraham that affects all of us today, that affects how we even understand and think about Jesus Christ today, uh, would be meaningless because he could just take it all back in a second. So as we get into Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 7, uh, I want us to go in depth to God's immutability I'm going to give you my understanding of it as I stand here today, and my hope is that at the end of this, your faith and ways will remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. I believe, as Numbers 23, 19 says, you'll see God as, <clears throat> what does it say? Numbers 23:19. Let's read it. God is not a man that he should lie nor the Son of Man, that he should repent. I believe you'll see him this way after, after this morning's message. And of course, if you are uh, new to the Bible or not new to the Bible and you enjoy reading your Bible and you enjoy learning about it, I would encourage you greatly to look all these verses up on your own after we're done here. There's this great group in the Bible, they're called Bereans, and every time Paul preached to them, they would go back and make sure that everything he preached actually came from the Bible. So I encourage you to do so today. Exodus 32, starting in verse 7. Exodus 32, starting in verse 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get you down. For your people, which you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. 
They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be your gods, O Israel, which have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. What does God say to Moses right here? God says, you know what? I'm really sick of these guys. Let me go and take care of them. I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to start you fresh, Moses. I'll get you a whole new batch of people in the wilderness to take with you into the promised land. Did you guys get that out of that? That's what I got out of that. I don't know. Let's skip down to verse 14. Let's see what it says there. Verse 14. I'm reading from the King James, by the way. I don't know what's up on the board. I have no idea. Okay. Verse 14. And it said, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Did God just change his mind? Yes, he did, someone says. Go ahead, talk about it with your neighbors for a second. Did God just change his mind? Think about those verses. Talk with someone next to you. Did God just change his mind? All right, I'm going to ask you to hold your answers in for a little bit. Think about it for a few more minutes. Uh, Let me give you a little bit bit of background about what's happening in the story right now. A little bit of context leading up to this situation. The Israelites are waiting at the bottom of Mount Sinai for Moses to come back down from the mountain. Uh, They've just been freed from Egypt. They've escaped Pharaoh's horsemen through the the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, Moses has been leading the way the entire time. The entire time they've been with Moses at the helm, and all of a sudden he's up on this mountain for almost 40 days now, 40 nights, and the Israelites are getting a little insecure about themselves. They're not so sure what's going on. Uh, They're getting a little impatient, rightfully so. There's a number of things that could have happened to a man walking up on a mountain all by himself at that time. So in their insecurity, the Israelites look to Aaron And what do they do? They create an idol. Uh, They create a golden calf and they begin to worship it. They take all of their jewelry, all their gold, a lot of the riches that they left Egypt with, and they turn it into their own God. And this God becomes the God that they worship, and this God becomes the God that they say is the God who delivered them from the Egyptians. (laughs) What? (laughs) Really? What happened? They've forgotten the man of God, and more importantly, they've forgotten God who delivered them just a few short weeks prior. Now, here's a little theopathism for you, okay? If we were to try to relate to how God thinks in this situation, not that we ever can. We're finite beings. He's infinite. But let's try for a second. If I am God in this situation, and I just freed millions of people from the bondage of their captors, and I've just taken them through the Red Sea, I have just delivered them from all of their enemies. I have fed them when they were hungry. I have uh, given them water when they were thirsty. I have removed their enemies out of the way whenever they were faced with enemies in the wilderness. How, how would I be feeling? If I, how would you be feeling if you were God right now? Uh, may I say this? Every teacher, every parent, every friend, every sibling, every spouse in this room should understand God's sentiment right now. You should understand God's sentiment when you see a clear lack of trust in a person 
even after you've given so much to secure and comfort the needs of that other person. Just before all this, God had provided water, manna, quails, protection for Israel. This all took place in chapters 15 through 17 prior to this. Where is their faith in God who brought them out of bondage? Where are the Israelites' faith in the, the deliverer? In the song we heard, the third song, Deliverer, you brought us out of the miry clay. Where is their faith in that deliverer? He brought them out of their fallen world into his perfect promises to, to be going into the promised land. Where is their faith? I would put the question this way for us. When we go through something difficult, where is our faith? Whenever God seems to have disappeared for a moment or, or the man of God who has been leading us seems to have disappeared for a moment, what happens to our faith? Now, to be fair, every single one of us can also relate to the Israelites. Someone they look up to and believe in is missing. This is Moses. He's been gone 40 nights. Uh, this is a different time period in life. There's no FaceTime. There's no Zoom. There's no Find My Friends or messaging service that gives them the opportunity to check in with their leader. You know, someone goes on a trip these days, and you just have to send a simple text. Hey, how's it going? Oh, good. Oh, great. Okay, we're fine. Awesome. And that's all it takes. But whenever the, their, their leader is gone for 40 nights up on top of a very dark, ominous mountain, it says in Exodus 24, verses 15 through 17, it's dark, ominous, and fiery in their sight, you start to wonder, I, I don't think he's coming back. I think we're on our own here. I think we have to figure this out ourselves. Moses, as a representative of God, has had a great effect in their lives up to this point, but now he may never be coming back. Does this resonate with any of you here? Have you ever had uh, someone walk into your life, a man or woman of God, who has greatly affected you for a season, and then at the same time, as quick as that season started, it came to an end, and that person seems to be gone? Has that ever happened to any of you? I don't know. It's happened to me. I, I, I feel like I can relate to these people, how they're feeling right now. They've discipled you through love, patience, care, even correction, and then, the, then they're just gone. How about, have we ever felt this way about God when we are in the thick of those unforeseen circumstances? Have we ever thought that, you know, God actually does leave us or forsake us, even though his word says that he doesn't? In Hebrews 13.5, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Joshua, he says, I will never leave you and forsake you. If God is not immutable, and God says, I will never leave you and forsake you, what do we care? But if he's immutable, if he doesn't change, if what he says will surely come to pass, if he's not a liar, then when he says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, that means something to us. That means something to you. If you're a believer or an unbeliever in this room, if you hear God saying to you, I will never leave you and never forsake you, I would want to search out that relationship a little bit. I would want to see what that God is talking about. Okay, now let's bring in the full picture of what's going on here. Because I, I, I purposely skipped over like three or four verses whenever we read that passage in Exodus 32. If you're in my Romans class, what do I say all the time about reading the Bible. What's the most important thing you need to consider when you're reading the Bible? Oh, I was looking over there. I saw we got some over here. Okay, context. You need context. Go back to Exodus 32, and we're going to go to verse 11 where I started to skip. Who is God speaking to 
in the verses that we have read so far. He's speaking to Moses. Does Moses speak back to God? Yeah, he does. It's coming up right here, verse 11. I've only showed you God speaking thus far, but Moses speaks back to him. What is God most interested in when it comes to, uh, when it comes to his creation? All right, communication, communion, giving of each other. What does all of this speak to? Relationship. God is most concerned with his relationship with his creation. God is most concerned with Moses, who he has right in front of him on top of this mountain. He's saying all these things about the Israelites, but he's going to say something different to the Israelites later. Right now, he's speaking directly to Moses. He's concerned with his relationship with Moses at this moment, at this point in time. When God speaks to us, he wants us to speak back to him. In Isaiah 118, God says, come now, let us reason together, together. Not let me do all the talking, you listen and just obey. He says, let us reason together. Let us be on the same page. Here's what I'm doing. Here's why I'm doing it. Do you believe it? Do you have faith in that? Do you want to ask me any questions? I believe he's testing Moses. I don't believe he has any intention of wiping out the Israelites right then and there. And whenever you read that passage, it doesn't even say that he's going to do it right then and there. He's testing his leader, Moses, to see what is in the leader's heart. God testing his people is all throughout the Bible. First chapter of James, Romans 5, 1 Peter 1, all speak to it. So let's, let's, just, let's just know that God tests us, and it's for our benefit, and it's for, our, uh, for us to become partakers of his holiness. So let's see what it says here. Exodus 32, verses 11, 12, and 13. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath wax hot against your people, which you have brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and repent of this evil against your people. Remember Abraham... Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swear by your own self. Remember talking about that, Hebrews 6.13? And said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And then we get to verse 14. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Before we get to whether or not God changed his mind, let's talk about Moses for a second. Do you think as the leader of this crazy congregation, millions of people down at the bottom of the mountain worshiping uh, golden calf idols, and it says they like lose most of their clothing because they're just like so focused on worshiping this God, do you think Moses as the leader passes a test before God at this moment? What did, what did Moses ask of God? Don't do it. Don't take out these people. If, if not for the fact that they're your people, do it for your namesake, God. Do it for the fact that you've promised this, that you've sworn this to our fathers before us, and that we're just living in these promises that you've given us, and we have faith in this, so don't do it, Lord. The result of God not taking action right then and there on the Israelites 
is definitely a result of Moses' heart as a leader for them. When Moses hears God's intention, he instantly calls on God and his immutability. He calls God on his immutability. Why would Moses call God on his immutability if in the next verse we all sit there and think God changed his mind? Does that make sense? God does not change. God does not say one thing and do the other. Moses calls out God for who he is, the I am that I am that introduced himself to him when they met at the burning bush. Moses says, in a nutshell, God, you can't do this. Do you remember your promises? When God tests our faith, we're not only able to, but actually all power is given unto us to call God out on his promises. In Hebrews 4, verse 16, do you know what it says that we can do as believers? It says that we can come boldly to his throne to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. But what if we don't believe we can? What if we believe God changed his mind about us? What if we believe that something that we did excludes us from being able to go to the throne of his grace and demand his grace and his mercy in our time of need? God says we can do that. God says we can do that. We can ask God to fill us with his perfect love in 1 John 4.18 when we have fear in our lives. Fear has torment, it says, but perfect love casts out fear. But what if we don't believe that? What if we think the fear is too great? What if we think the circumstances are too big? What if we think everything is caving in around us? God says, rely on my perfect love. I'm not changing. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to leave you out to dry, consume you in your sin. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to me by faith. All right, so now let's go back to Exodus 32 and verse 14. Did God change his mind? We said in Numbers 23, 19 that God will not repent, and yet Moses right here in Exodus 32, 14, as he recorded it, he said God repented. The better and more accurate word here is God relented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. You can look through different translations of the Bible. You'll see relented used in multiple different translations. But that's not even the point. That's not even the point. It is more accurate because God does, in fact, follow through with destroying everyone in the camp. In Numbers 14, only Joshua and Caleb are spared. Everyone else does actually get consumed. God says it, and though it doesn't happen right then and there, it does end up happening. So, at this, so God is still not a liar. God is still not just changing his mind right there in the moment. He's holding back his judgment. Now let me make this perfectly clear to all of you here today. We are all results of God holding back his judgment on our lives. The Israelites are in this chapter... And every single one of us are results of God constraining himself from his judgment so that we would have an opportunity by faith to respond to him. If he were not immutable, 
every single one of us would not be here right now. Every single one of us would have been dealt with in our sins already and just wiped away. It is no mistake, it is no mistake that Peter says, I think it's 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In Isaiah verse 30, chapter 30, verse 18, God is waiting to be gracious to Israel in the book of Isaiah, but God is also waiting to be gracious to us. In the book of Jeremiah, he calls Israel again and again to return unto him, over and over again. And because God is immutable, we know that he calls to us over and over again to return unto him whenever we're lost in the thick of our sin, whenever we're lost in the thick of circumstances, whenever we can't see the light because the darkness all around us is so great. He never planned to judge the Israelites right then and there. Instead, he used his omniscience, his all-knowing power of what will happen to all those in the wilderness to put Moses to the test. Instead of worrying about whether God changes his mind, maybe we should consider if we've made up our minds about who God is. Have you made up your mind about who God is? One more passage, next chapter over, Exodus 33, and then we'll wrap it up here. After all this takes place, Moses comes down from the mountain with the law. He comes down, he looks at what happened, what, what's happened, and he gets righteously indignant. <laughs> and he throws the tablets down, they're destroyed, and he calls all the Levites unto him and says, go out into the camp and destroy those people who are being evil. And it says 3,000 men are killed right then and there in that situation that took place. But in the next chapter, when God tells Moses to take the congregation and move on, they move, they move to Mount Horeb, it says. And whenever the, the whole congregation camps at Mount Horeb, then Moses is instructed to take God's tabernacle outside of the camp, over, out of the way, because that's where God wanted his presence to be manifested for the camp. Now, why would God do this? Exodus 33, verse 7, Moses took the tabernacle pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. So this crazy thing happens with the Israelites. They all get caught up in idolatry. They all lose their sight on Moses and God. They all lose their sight on the, the, the deliverance that they already have through him, and Moses gives them another chance the next time they move. And he puts his tabernacle outside away from them. Why? Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 12. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Because just as God was testing Moses up on top of the mountain with his people down there caught up in sin, God has an opportunity to speak to his people now who were caught up in the sin. 
He says, come out to me and find me and let's commune together. This is true for every single one of us. If you're a believer in this room, at one point we left the congregation, we left the life of sin, we left the course of the world, and we went out and we found God because he drew us there. He drew us there. The man of God said, hey, this is where God's presence is going to be. Do you want it? Come out this way. Come on over here. Let's see it. And one by one, the people would come out of the camp to see what God was doing out there. And when his glory appeared, it says, they, you go back to Exodus 33, they all rejoiced when his glory appeared. As believers, we're always called out of the camp. As believers, we're always called uh, individually by God to go out to him and commune with him. When we pray, Matthew 6, we go into our closet alone to pray with him, to commune with him. When Abraham was called in Isaiah 51 or 61, he was called by himself. When Moses saw the burning bush, he turned aside and was called by himself to commune with God. Every single one of us has had that opportunity to respond to God. And as we walk with him, and as we get caught up in all of life's stuff, we have that opportunity again over and over and over because God does not change. He is immutable. He doesn't want you stuck in your stuff. He wants to take you out of it, show you his glory, show you who he is, and motivate you to keep on moving with him because he has a lot of th- great, amazing things that we can't even fathom doing on our own, but with him we can do all things. And if you're an unbeliever in this room, same thing. He's calling you out to his camp. He's calling you out of the world that you've just been clinging to, the, that group of people who are just so focused on this golden calf idol, who are so focused on the riches of this world, who are so focused on uh, gold in this, uh, prestige in that. And he's saying, get out of there. Get away from it and come find me because I'm right here waiting to be gracious to you. I'm right here waiting to show you that I do not change, that I will always be with you, that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And he did that as a picture in the Old Testament and he did that through his son Christ being crucified outside of Jerusalem in the New Testament to show you what he's willing to do for you how far he's willing to go for you, how much he's willing to sacrifice so that you would be with him. God is unchanging and unwavering in his love for us. His perfect gifts come from him without variableness in James 1.17 and without repentance in Romans 11.29. Because we know God is immutable and Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we know that he's waiting to be gracious to us. We just need to respond. We just need to have faith. We just need to say, yes, Lord, I believe you, and go look for him, because he's right there. Let's pray. Uh, If you could bow your heads and close your eyes, please. If you are not a believer yet in Jesus Christ in this room, uh, Christ is calling to you today. 
He wants you to know how much he loves you. He wants you to know that he died for you, that he paid for your sins, that all those things that you get caught up in on a daily basis, he is willing to remove them as far as the east is from the west and take them off of your, off of your plate, take the burden off of you if you just come to him. It's so simple in your heart. All you have to do is say to him, Jesus Christ, I believe in you. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for paying for my sins. Help me to follow after you. And he'll do that. If you'd like to receive Christ today, just say it right now in your heart. Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. Jesus, help me to follow after you. Show me your glory. If you said that prayer today, could you please just lift up your hand really quick? Very quickly. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Any hands? Any hands? Thank you, Jesus. For the believers in the room, God is calling to us every single day to draw near to him, draw closer to him, to be filled with his love, his grace, and his mercy. As we're filled with it, he will give us the opportunity to give it out. And we just ask you, Lord, to please help us to give it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.